This archived broadcast of Janet Meffer Today is brought to you by Preborn. For $140, you can provide ultrasounds to five women in crisis pregnancies. Call now, 855-402-BABY. That's 855-402-2229 or JanetMefford.com. This is Janet Mefford Today. Our confidence is in Christ alone. Are we going to stand with God come what may? If the Word of God says it, I believe it! And that's the way it is. And now, here is Janet Mefford. Welcome everybody. First Peter chapter 4, 12 and 16 tell us, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial that has come upon you as though something strange were happening to you. If you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but glorify God that you bear that name. It is a fact that if you are a Christian, you will face trials in this sinful world. The question is, how do we deal with these trials when they do come our way? That's what we're going to talk about today with Dr. Robert Jeffress, Senior Pastor of First Baptist Dallas and Speaker on the daily radio program, Pathway to Victory. And today we will be discussing his latest book. It is called Courageous 10 Strategies for Thriving in a Hostile World. Dr. Jeffress, great to have you with us again. How are you doing? Doing great. Good to be back with you, Janet. Well, thank you. What are you hearing these days from Christians about the battle that we are all facing in this secular culture right now? What kind of temperature have you taken as far as believers and their reactions to where we are right now as a country? You know, I think there's a danger right now of becoming complacent. I mean, I think we're living in a time where there's a little bit more of a faith-friendly attitude uh, from government. Having 150 federal judges put on the court recently that are conservative, and we may be lulled into thinking the battle is over. It's not. I think what we're experiencing right now is just a respite. I do think uh, when the left gets in control again, it's not if, it's when they get in control again, there's going to be an onslaught against Christians and the church like we've never seen in this country before. Hmm. And that onslaught isn't going to be incremental, Janet. It's going to be intensive and immediate. And that's one reason I wrote this book, Courageous, to help prepare Christians, not only for the current battle, we have from all different directions we can talk about, but I think what is going to be a coming battle as well. Well, I agree with you there. To what do you attribute this rising hostility? Obviously, there are many, many factors that have played into where we are as a culture right now. But what do you see as some of the most dangerous streams that are afoot right now that do threaten the church and do threaten individual Christians, not only in terms of our religious freedom, but our free speech and some of these other things that we're all experiencing? Well, you know, I see two things. One is just the change in the attitude toward the Bible. You know, it used to be, for example, let's just use the gay marriage issue as an example. It used to be when Christians would argue uh, and use Scripture to back up traditional marriage, one man, one woman, for a lifetime, uh, people would say, well, they're different interpretation of those verses. Now you've got people just saying the Bible's wrong, period. Yeah, yeah. It's absolutely wrong. True. And uh, that's, I think that's a change. But the trend that really bothers me, it used to be the left was uh, content to be able to share their viewpoint, which they have every right to do in a free society. But what we're seeing now is cancelization, that they want to cancel out your right and my right to even articulate our viewpoint. And, you know, you see this uh, just recently with uh, Pete Buttigieg, and uh, he... Uh, 
uh, uh, from Indiana, worked with Mike Pence. They had a wonderful relationship. And suddenly he calls Mike Pence a hate monger <laughs> because he has the audacity to believe that he personally believes that marriage should be between a man and a woman. I talked to the vice president right after Buttigieg launched that attack. He was shocked. He yeah. said, I thought we had a great relationship. I've never said one uh, demeaning thing about Pete Buttigieg, but that is the new left. They want to silence anyone who does not agree with their agenda. Well, right. You want to demonize Mike Pence. How many times has he been out there in the media saying, I came from Mike Pence's Indiana, as if it was yeah. some kind of concentration camp? It's insane. It's been <laughs> absolutely insane. It is. So let's talk about some of these survival tips. I think you have some really good tips for Christians. First of all, you say, don't panic. How will that help us to live in an anti-Christian world, this lack of panic? And right. And by the way, this isn't just a culture war book. You know, C.S. Lewis said, enemy occupied territory. That's what this world is. And if you're trying to live your faith, you've got attacks from without the culture. You've got attacks from within the residue of an old sin nature that pulls you away from God. And you've got attacks from below an adversary, the devil, who's trying to destroy everything in you. And so, you know, these attacks come from all directions. But what I did was I took 10 survival tips that survivalists say you need to use in order to overcome a threatening situation, and I applied them to the Christian life. And certainly the first one, don't panic. You know, 80% of people in like a, who survive a plane crash or in an avalanche, their first instinct is to freeze. And uh, I, that can happen whenever we feel threatened by overwhelming circumstances. I use the example of Joshua, you know, when he found out that he was going to fill Moses' sandals. His first instinct was to panic. But God said, don't fear, don't be dismayed. I am with you wherever you are. Be courageous. Janet, I just got a letter from a young mother just uh, last week. She had read this first chapter. She said that very week she had received news that she had terminal cancer and only three or four months to live. And she said, my first instinct was to panic. What does this mean for my children, my husband? And then I recalled those words you repeated from Joshua 1, Take courage, I will be with you. Wonderful. Yeah, that that is comforting no matter what you're going through. And you discuss this need to be disciplined in areas like our thinking and in areas like our conduct. What are you referring to there? Well, I I think uh, certainly... Uh, one of the survival tactics we talk about is to trust your training and uh, to be trained in righteousness. You know, if you wait until you're in a crisis to decide, uh, I need to, you know, train and prepare for this, you've waited too long. I think about that uh, Lion Air 737 that was found itself in a death spiral, and the pilots spent the last few moments of their life frantically searching through the flight manual to discover what to do. If you wait until you're in the middle of a crisis to decide, I need to find out what the Bible says and I need to do, you've waited too long. And uh, I, I think that's why it's so important that we be trained in righteousness and specifically trained in God's Word. We have it hidden in our heart so that when that crisis comes, we know exactly what to do. Yeah, that's excellent. And God's Word, as you point out in the book, gives us courage. I, I think that's such an important point for Christians to hear right now, Dr. Jeffers, because I think we can panic when we look all around us sometimes and we see everybody seems 
seems to be against me as a Christian. As you mentioned before, the attacks on speech and, you know, the cancel culture and everything that kind of is looming before us. But if we know the word of God and we're standing on the word of God, that's a reminder to us that our God is sovereign. This world is not all there is, and he's in charge, regardless of what we're feeling. That's right, and that's one of the strategies I talk about tips is develop the victor, not the victim mindset. You know, it's just so easy to say, woe is me, I can't believe I'm being attacked for my faith, or that uh, this sickness has invaded my life. And and yet the Bible says, as a person thinks in his heart, so is he. We are victors, and and I use the story of Joseph. I mean, Joseph could have been in therapy the rest of his life if he wanted to for (laughs) what he had went through, gone through with his brother selling him into slavery and falsely accused of rape, but you know, he believed in a God who was bigger than his circumstances. And that's why he said to his brothers, you know, you meant it for evil, but guess what? God's bigger than you are. He used it for good. And I think as long as we know we're living a life, Janet, that is pleasing to God, that's what gives us courage. You know, Jesus said, don't fear the person who can only kill your body. Fear the one who is able to destroy the body and the soul. Amen. That's a good reminder. I love that passage. What about the situational awareness that you discuss? Because when we are looking at our times, sometimes we don't put it in a broader biblical perspective. How can we do that? You know, that's one reason I love your program, because you help people know what's going on. And, you know, there's some people, you know, who try to be more spiritual than God is. You know, they say, well, I don't pay attention to the culture. I just read my Bible. I don't want to get involved in the news. It's depressing and so forth. Well, there's no premium on ignorance in the Bible. You know, the sons of Issachar, First Corinthians, First Chronicles 12, men who understood their times and knew what they should do. Uh, you may know Billy Graham was a member of our church for 54 years. And he said, you know, I go through life with a newspaper in one hand and the Bible in my other hand. Mm. The newspaper tells me what is happening. The Bible tells me what it means. And I think we need to be students of the Bible, yes, but students of the culture as well. I agree with you on that, Dr. Jefferson. I always feel better when you say something like that, because then it reminds me I'm not the only Christian who says, you know, we can do both, preach the gospel and care about being salt and light in a culture that desperately needs the gospel. We're going to come back right after this. Dr. Robert Jeffress, my guest. The book is called Courageous 10 Strategies for Thriving in a Hostile World. We'll be back. The healthcare open enrollment period has ended. Did you miss it? Don't go a whole year without having a healthcare program. Sign up with Liberty HealthShare. As a Christian healthcare sharing ministry, Liberty HealthShare is not insurance, so you can still sign up. In fact, you can sign up any time of year, and there are no contracts. Starting as low as $199 a month, Liberty HealthShare has memberships for singles, couples, and families, so you can choose the ideal program for your situation. Plus, Liberty HealthShare has no network, so you're free to pick your own doctors, hospitals, and providers. Liberty HealthShare is a nonprofit ministry, so your money goes toward helping other members with their eligible medical expenses. And in your time of need, other members are there for you, too. You can feel good knowing you're part of a community of like-minded individuals who understand the importance of people coming together to bear one another's burdens. Go to libertyhealthshare.org JMT for more information. libertyhealthshare.org JMT. To me, the ultrasound was the best part because up until that point, I did not 
think about anything but myself. I did not think about the blessing that I was given or what was inside of me. The Ministry of Preborn meets young moms where they are and introduces them to their preborn babies. Because when a mom in crisis sees her baby on ultrasound and hears his heartbeat, eight out of 10 times, she will see her baby as a living person, not an inconvenience. That ultrasound changed everything for me. It really did. That made it all worthwhile to know that I was gonna have a little blessing. Preborn is the largest provider of free ultrasounds in the country. Would you join with Preborn and Janet Maffer today? For $140, you can sponsor five ultrasounds and help save five babies' lives. All gifts are tax deductible, and 100% of your donation goes towards saving babies' lives. Call 855-402-BABY now. 855-402-2229. That's 855-402-BABY. Or there's a banner to click at JanetMaffer.com. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's Janet. Welcome back. My guest is Dr. Robert Jeffress, Senior Pastor at First Baptist Dallas, speaker on the widely heard daily radio program, Pathway to Victory, and author of Courageous, 10 Strategies for Thriving in a Hostile World. And we were talking about some of these Bible figures like Joshua, for example, Dr. Jeffress, and how his courage was built on the Word of God and, and the God of the Bible, of course. And that's where our confidence needs to be as well. When you look and take inventory, as you advise people to do, one of the things that you're talking about here is going back to Ephesians 6 and understanding the armor of God. And I'm really glad that you wrote about that because... God has given us specifics on not only that there is a battle, but how we are to arm ourselves for it. Could you speak to that a little bit? Sure. You know, in each one of these survival tips that I talk about in Courageous, I use a real-life survival story to introduce that particular principle. And uh, in the chapter, Take Inventory, I use the real-life story of Apollo 13. A lot of your listeners remember the Ron Howard movie. Oh, yeah. Remember that spacecraft was stranded. They didn't have the right filter in order to uh, rid the uh, spacecraft of the carbon dioxide. So all they could do was use the materials they had on board and uh, to try to jerry-rig their own uh, filter. And they had a bungee cord, a couple of plastic bags, some old socks, and they, they manufactured their own filter. Well, when we're in this world, you know, we have to take inventory. What is it that God has provided us to help make it through the storm that we're in right now? Fortunately, he's given us more than a bungee cord and some old socks. (laughs) He's given us two resources. One is the armor of God, and you alluded to that in Ephesians chapter 6. And I go through a practical explanation of what each of those pieces of armor means to us. But there's a second resource, Janet, that we don't think often about, but that is the people of God or a resource for us as well when we're facing challenges in life. You know, God never meant for us to face these challenges or these attacks by ourselves. That's why it's so important for Christians to be united with other Christians in a local body of believers. It's like Solomon said in Ecclesiastes 4, two are better than one, and a cord of three strands is not easily broken. I mean, Satan loves, I think one of his favorite strategies is the isolate Christians and then attack them. And uh, that's why it's so important that we bind ourselves together spiritually with other believers. Yeah, that is really important. And and talking about this broader problem of opposition, you had mentioned before, we, we are, I think you said C.S. Lewis mentioned, we're an enemy-occupied territory. And we are. I mean, we are. He's the prince of the power of the air. We have the yes. devil. We have the flesh. We have the world. We have it all, all around us, all of this opposition. How do we handle that, though? In practical terms, I mean, you're out on the front 
front lines all the time as a pastor, and you're very much engaged in the cultural battles of our day. But how do you handle opposition? How do you deal with that just from your own perspective as a Christian? And and how can you help other Christians follow your example and, and learn how to do the same? Well, first of all, you know, one of the strategies I talk about in the book is uh, bend but don't break. I mean, I think, frankly, there's some things we need to be willing to bend a little bit on, things that are not principles in God's Word. And whenever we're facing opposition, I think, first of all, we have to ask ourselves, is the stand I'm taking really based on Scripture, or is it based on my own personal preferences? Mm -hmm. So I think, uh, first of all, be sure that the stand you're willing to take and face opposition on is biblical. And secondly, don't be surprised when the attack comes. I think so many Christians, Janet, are just absolutely overwhelmed. They're surprised, oh, I can't believe I'm suffering pressure at work for my stand for Christ, or that I'm facing conflict in my own family. You know, I think you recited the verse in 1 Peter 4, don't be surprised, brethren, at the fiery ordeal that has come upon you as though some strange thing were happening to you. Right. You know, Jesus was real clear in John sixteen thirty three. In this world, you will have opposition, persecution, tribulation. Being a Christian is not an automatic pass from problems. It's a guarantee of problems. Mm. But then he added, be of good cheer, literally, take courage, for I have overcome the world. That's great. And you cite Daniel. I just love Daniel. I think Daniel is such a good person to study in light of where we are as a culture right now. He was absolutely unwilling to obey a law that said he couldn't pray to his God anymore. And I mean, that sort of courage is very rare, though. And I'm wondering, as you're looking across the the culture right now, and we are walking, I think you're absolutely right. I think we're walking into more persecution in the future. But in some ways, the American church is holding unprepared for it because we've been so free for so many years. How can we learn from Daniel, would you say, in advance, you know, God forbid, if we do come into a time of persecution ourselves? You know, it's interesting. Daniel faced continual opposition under different kings. Under Nebuchadnezzar, you know, he was told, first of all, to defile himself by eating food that uh, uh, would uh, uh, cause him to disobey God. Now, he didn't respond to Nebuchadnezzar and say, you dirty heathen king, why would I ever obey you instead of Almighty God? Instead, he designed a creative alternative that would help him keep God's word, but also help the king uh, 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 fulfill his agenda. I mean, that's wisdom. To, To try to avert... Uh, conflict were possible. Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers. But then later, uh, when he was ordered not to bow down and worship his God, he refused to obey that command, and he was thrown into the lion's den. So, you know, I think, you know, as Paul said, wherever it's possible, you know, live at peace with all men. A peace is better when it's possible, but it's not always possible. And I think that's what we learned with Daniel. Yeah, good words. What about the danger of celebrating the summit? You cited as one of the stories in your book, uh, this mountain mountaineer guide, Rob Hall, and from Into Thin Air. I've read that book about a hundred times, so I know that story very, very well. But Rob Hall was one of those mountain guides in 1996 who perished up on Mount Everest, along with another guide and a number of other people who were trying to hike Mount Everest because they were caught in a storm. What can we learn from that particular tale, do you think, from from a spiritual perspective on not celebrating the summit and really having humility? Well, you know, mountain uh, uh, climbers will tell you the most dangerous part of the expedition is not the ascent to the summit, but it's the descent from the summit. Yes. You know, it's on the way down that mountain climbers tend to be less 
uh, careful. Uh, they're fatigued. They've had a great victory. They're most prone to fall. And, you know, Paul said something similar in First Corinthians. He said, Beware, therefore let him who thinks he stands take heed, lest he fall. <laughs> and the fact is, we can celebrate when we've made it through a challenge in life. We can thank God for it. But we shouldn't celebrate too long, because the fact is, there's always another challenge right around the corner. And there may be people listening to us right now, you know, they may be thinking, Jen, oh, well, I don't have anything to have to be courageous about. I, I'm not facing any problems. Just wait. One's <laughs> coming at you, and you better be prepared. That's right. So so this is really a lesson on the dangers of pride, isn't it? That we should oh, not wow. get so excited about our performance before the Lord and our courage today, because tomorrow it might be tested in a way we've never had it tested before. You know, and, and like a Jesus in the wilderness, he successfully, you know, combated Satan's temptations. Satan fled from him. But you know the closing phrase of that chapter, until a more opportune time. Yes. Satan was coming back at Jesus, and he'll come back after you and me as well. That's right. How about learning from the past? This is another one of the survival tips in your book, Courageous. And uh, one of the things that you point out, which I really appreciate, is how the Lord told his people, for example, in Deuteronomy, what was it, about 16 times, to remember their history. What is the value in remembering the past and learning from the past when it comes to trusting the Lord. You know, there's a great chapter, 1 Corinthians 10, you know, Paul talks about all of the failures of the Israelites in the past, and he said these things are a type, an example for you, and uh, we can learn from people's mistakes so that we don't have to repeat those mistakes. You know, the old saying, those who don't learn from history are condemned to repeat it. Uh, We don't have to repeat the same mistakes, uh, not just of our forefathers, but even, you know, our parents and grandparents. I think we need to be honest and acknowledge the good things they've done for us, the great lessons we've learned from them, but also the mistakes that they made that we don't have to repeat. And I think that's one of the great values of reading Scripture. Uh, Reading Scripture gives us uh, heroes to emulate, but also people to uh, shun when it comes to their example. And usually you find both good things and bad things in the same person. Not everybody's all good. Not everyone's all bad. You can learn uh, positive and negative lessons. You know, I, you know my predecessor, Dr. Criswell, who was pastor of our church for 50 years, when I was a youth minister at our church, he said, Robert, one day you're going to have your own staff, so I want you to watch everything I do, take notes, <laughs> uh, memorize how I handled the staff, and then do just the opposite, and you'll be a great success <laughs> in ministry. Has that worked out the way that he predicted? <laughs> <laughs> That's great. You know, uh, something I wanted to ask you before we run out of time, because I think this is an important point. You were quoting scripture before, insofar as it is possible, live at peace with one another, which I think is good. You shouldn't fight battles where you don't have to have a battle. What do you think the battles are, though, that we should be fighting? What, What do you see as absolutely essential right now in terms of where we are in our country, uh, having Christians on the front lines and refusing to just lay down our swords and die? Well, I think probably the number one battle right now that's even going on within the Christian church, much less the world, is the exclusivity of Jesus Christ for salvation. I think that is the issue. And you know, Janet, I tell the story in my book, when I was 18, student council president at uh, my local high school here, secular school, I was told that my job as student council president was to pray at the first football game. And uh, they said, no, whatever you do, don't pray in Jesus' name. 
name. In fact, if you do, you'll be removed from the position oh. of student council president. And I thought about that, and I thought, you know, if I if I fold here, I might as well give up any idea of being in the ministry. So, you know, I prayed that prayer, and I closed in the loudest voice I could use in the name of the one who came and died and rose again, <laughs> that we can have eternal life, Jesus Christ our Lord. And you know what? I didn't lose my position, but I was trying to be bullied, and I think it's important for every Christian to take a stand wherever they are, especially when it comes to the exclusivity of Jesus for salvation. Well, I couldn't agree more. Courageous is the name of the book, Dr. Robert Jeffress. Always great to talk to you, Dr. Jeffress. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me, Janet. You bet. God bless. And we'll be back on Janet Meffer today. This archived broadcast of Janet Meffer Today is brought to you by Preborn. For $140, you can provide ultrasounds to five women in crisis pregnancies. Call now, 855-402-BABY. That's 855-402-2229 or JanetMefford.com. You're listening to Janet Mefford Today. And now, here's Janet. Welcome back. Thanks so much for being with us. Pete Buttigieg recently promised an illegal alien that he would have taxpayer-funded health care if Buttigieg became the next president. One of his quotes was, as you know, the Affordable Care Act, one of the many missing pieces that it has is that the exchanges are not available to the undocumented. He went on to say, I would change that, and that would be a change that would come with the Medicare for All Who Want It plan that I'm proposing. And this particular plan that he's proposing would essentially add a public option to Obamacare. It makes you really kind of miss the days when government stayed out of things more than it does now. And this is especially true as we're seeing under Obamacare, these premiums just absolutely skyrocket for millions of Americans. But as always, thankfully, there are alternatives. So we're going to talk about that today with Matt Bellis, Chief Communications Officer for Liberty HealthShare, a national nonprofit healthcare sharing ministry. Matt, so good to have you with us again. How are you? Janet, thank you for being having me be here. This is a fantastic time to be with you. Well, it's always nice to talk to you as well. So a public option to Obamacare, how do you think that might turn out? Do you think that would make things cheaper for Americans when it comes to covering their medical costs? I mean, we have to seriously consider ourselves to be uh, uh, very forgetful, to think that any type of involvement by the government would make anything in health care cheaper. Right. Uh, <laughs> right. We, there was a bill of goods that was uh, sold to us back in 2010. Uh, and uh, really, our memories aren't that uh, far gone to where those promises, unfortunately, fall very short. So, no, we need better options within healthcare, And that is derived more from the marketplace of healthcare rather than government-backed uh, solutions. Well, one of the things that I think becomes even more striking when I see things like this in the news is the difference between what is being proposed here, for example, and what Liberty HealthShare does. In other words, you have one side of the aisle, and there are many different options, clearly, but you have people talking about the fact that you need government to do more, government to take care of me, government to intervene, use taxpayer money for this, that, and the other thing, and drive costs up even more than they are already. And on the other hand, you have Liberty HealthShare saying, I got a good idea. How about we take care of each other's needs? I mean, this is it's a totally different paradigm and I wonder if you could just speak to that issue. Well, really it is 
uh, and I understand the impetus that people have when it comes to uh, seeing the problems within healthcare, because frankly, we see the problems within healthcare as well. Yeah, uh, rising costs, lower access. Uh, people not being able to uh, get the care that they need. We completely understand why people would almost run to that type of situation because it almost seems unsolvable whenever we have this system. But when you start to realize that it's been meddling within regulations and burdensome bureaucracies within healthcare that caused us to uh, uh, be in this situation to begin with, you start to realize that we might need to reverse course and try another way. And thankfully, within the market today, there are options for people to drive home a more consumer-based solution for healthcare rather than government-based solutions for healthcare. Even within the third-party pay system, uh, that's a very uh, 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 different system that is just antithetical to market forces, right. which is unfortunate, but we have options available to us, healthcare sharing being one of them, uh, for real change in people's lives that increases access and decreases costs. Well, talk a little bit, if you would, about how healthcare sharing actually works. When somebody calls Liberty Health Share and says, I just cannot afford the insurance plan that I've been carrying for all of these years, I, I need to have something more affordable. But w- what do you have to offer? How does it all work? Well, whenever somebody joins Liberty Health Share, they're joining a community of people who have gathered around like-minded principles to share in the medical expenses of one another. Each and every month, our members send in what's called a share amount. That share amount, whether it be two ninety nine for a single, three ninety nine for a couple, five twenty nine for a couple of of uh, a family of three or more, uh, but they send in that share amount directed by Liberty Healthcare to another member who has a real specific medical need for that month. And likewise, whenever you have a medical need, uh, the members of Liberty HealthShare gather to share in your medical expenses. Basically, it's like a mutual aid society or a church or uh, a community center where you gather together to support each other in times of need. It's what we would normally do if left to our own devices whenever we have a situation that is unexpected and unaffordable. It would be our friends, families, neighbors that we would turn to in times of need. We've just taken that idea, concept, and model, and brought some effective efficiencies behind it, technology to make it all work, uh, and we call it Liberty Health Share. Yeah. Now, when you talk, I know we have discussed this in the past, but for people who might not have heard our previous discussions, you have something called a share box. Explain for people what the share box is all about. Well, Sharebox is just our online forum and account system by which we govern our sharing. So it's a very easy system to use. You send in your share amount through an online system. You're able to see where it's going, what it's being used for. Uh, we protect our patients' privacies, of course, uh, but it's a, it's a way that we all gather. It's really like the, the house in which we all come together uh, to understand the sharing within the community, and that's called Sharebox. That's an account for every member of Liberty Health Share. Right. Now, for many newbies to healthcare sharing, they might ask the question, how do I know that my bills are going to get paid? Because right now, when I have medical insurance, I know that it will be submitted to the insurance company. My doctor will submit the bill to the insurance company. The 
insurance company will pay something or at least will come back and say, no, you're not covered. You have to meet your deductible and that sort of thing. But not being familiar with a system that is not healthcare insurance, how do I know that my bills will be paid? Well, really, that is a question on twofold. One really is the, the availability and size of the uh, community that we're a part of. We've got 250,000 members in all 50 states all across the country. So we are a community that can take care of each other. We share in over 30 to $35 million per month within medical bills. And uh, so we have the capacity to handle that. But the also the, the reason about uh, being able to pay for medical bills really is incentive. The incentive system within a third-party pay system really is out of whack. They're looking for ways to not pay medical bills, and we all see that from time to time when we hear horror stories of people being left with medical bills. But with health care sharing and Liberty Health Share, we look for ways to share in medical bills because you're not dealing with Liberty Health Share. You're dealing with a community of people of reciprocal giving and receiving. So the incentive on the uh, the part of Liberty Health Share is to find ways that we can all uh, uh, share on, that we want to share in those medical bills because we're a part of this community as well, and we want to make sure that it's functioning properly. Right. So when you go to your doctor, having switched to Liberty HealthShare, how does it work? How do you actually say, I, I'm with healthcare sharing now, and what do you do from there? Well, really, it's a very simple process. You just go to your doctor or hospital, share with them your Liberty HealthShare membership card, and it directs your Liberty uh, or your doctor on where to send the medical bills. And that's pretty much it. It's a very simple system to know. Uh, and frankly, with Liberty HealthShare and healthcare sharing, we're putting you back in charge of your healthcare. So you can deal with your doctor or hospital any way that you want to. Many doctors and hospitals really love healthcare sharing and almost prefer members of healthcare sharing ministries uh, because that allows them to practice medicine again. They're no longer de facto bureaucrats mm-hmm. for the uh, third party pay system. So, really, it changes that dynamic with your doctor or hospital. And as long as they're good with you as a Liberty Health Share member, we don't have a problem. And that whole billing process, very simple. Just send it through to Liberty Health Share. And if you like your doctor, you can keep your doctor. And that's actually true. <laughs> you can go that's to your actually doctor. true. You're right. <laughs> we have to make that caveat. But I mean, this is such an important thing. And as you say, over 250,000 members, you have so many people who are really, really enjoying the benefits of doing it in a more affordable way that aligns with your Christian conscience as well. And you can check more out at libertyhealthshare.org. Matt Bellis with us, as always, Chief Communications Officer for Liberty HealthShare, a national nonprofit healthcare sharing ministry. Always good to chat with you, Matt. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me, Janet. All right. God bless you. We'll be back on Janet Meffer today after this. Christians losing their businesses for not baking wedding cakes for homosexuals. Parents losing custody for not affirming their child's gender identity. Big tech censoring Christian books, videos, and social media posts. This isn't a dystopian nightmare. It's America in 2020. But what will God's people do to respond to the sexual radicals whose rising social and political power is threatening our religious freedom and our free speech? It's time for Christians to get informed about the looming threats that we're facing and learn how to respond as both 
both salt and light. That's why I'd like to personally invite you to join me at our second annual God's Voice Conference, a biblical response to LGBTQ plus tyranny coming to Oklahoma City on April 17th and 18th. You'll hear from an unprecedented lineup of some of the leading Christian thinkers, pastors, pro-family activists, and medical and therapeutic experts who are fighting on the front lines of this battle and standing firmly on God's word in the face of growing LGBTQ plus opposition to Christianity. Speakers including Dr. Everett Piper, Joe Dallas, Dr. Quentin Van Meter from the American College of Pediatricians, and Greg Burt from the California Family Council will all reveal the social, political, and spiritual threats to the church from this movement. They'll offer powerful biblical teaching and encouragement for the battle ahead. You'll hear testimonies from ex-homosexuals whose lives were transformed by the power of the gospel and learn how to answer common arguments that promote homosexuality and transgenderism. Let me tell you, there's nothing else like God's Voice Conference to get Christians ready to stand in this evil day. So I hope to see you at the God's Voice Conference and outreach of First Stone Ministries, April 17th and 18th in Oklahoma City, and take advantage of our early bird discount registration, only $85 through March 1st. So don't delay. Go to godsvoice.us. That's godsvoice.us and register for a conference unlike any other. Go to godsvoice.us and register now. What the church needs now is God's Voice. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's Janet. Welcome back. I think this is quite interesting to look at some of the data that comes out of Barna. Barna does a lot of surveys of church members and practicing Christians and Christian wannabes and this and that. They're always doing surveys, but they have a, a complete article here on five trends defining Americans' relationship to churches. This is part of the State of the Church 2020 analysis that they have done. And I found some of these trends really interesting. They're always kind of digging into what is going on in the churches across our country. And the number one trend here that they list is this one, nearly two in five churchgoers report regularly attending multiple churches. Isn't that interesting? Two in five churchgoers regularly attend multiple churches. And I think it's pretty standard that Christians will go to different churches from time to time, whether you're traveling or you're visiting family and you go to your home church because you're back home with mom and dad for a little while, something like that. But regularly at multiple churches, this is what they say, declining church loyalty or what is sometimes referred to as church hopping is becoming a common feature of church going. Just because somebody might attend church doesn't mean they attend the same church every time. While a majority of churchgoers tend to stick with a single congregation that accounts for 63% of churched adults or 72% of practicing Christians, a sizable minority is at least occasionally attending other churches, including nearly two in five churched adults 38% and one quarter of practicing Christians, 27% see the distinctions here. But still, it's over a quarter of Christians are attending multiple churches. Interestingly, church hoppers are just as likely as more loyal attenders to report weekly attendance. In other words, just because they select from a handful of different churches to attend doesn't make them any less likely to actually attend church on any given weekend. Also, those who hop around don't do so as a routine part of their church going in a given month, but typically attend another church occasionally. 
Kind of interesting. It doesn't delve into all of the reasons for this. I, I suppose I could take some educated guesses on why people would do this, but it's a lot of people. Declining church loyalty. And I wonder how declining church loyalty will affect churches in general over time if these numbers continue to grow. Second trend, churchgoers are divided on the value of church, on the value of church. Another element of the church-going landscape is the paradoxical perceptions that churchgoers hold of church itself. David Kinneman from Barna observes those who frequent worship services do so largely because of personal enjoyment. But many churchgoers also readily admit that they believe people are tired of church as usual. I have a problem with both of those things. I'm not saying that you should be miserable in your church. You you certainly shouldn't be miserable in your church. But personal enjoyment to me doesn't seem to be the number one reason you should go to a particular church. I think first and foremost, you ought to go to a particular church because you believe what they believe, that they are a Bible-believing church, preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ, emphasizing discipleship, being faithful to the word of God, and you have fellowship. I mean, there are a lot of other reasons, but primarily that you believe this is a Bible-believing, faithful church. Shouldn't that be the first reason that you're there if you're a Christian? And many churchgoers also readily admit that they believe people are tired of church as usual. I don't know what that means. Does that mean we're tired of the, in some of these churches, the smoke machines and the loud rock bands that require you to put earplugs in when you walk into the sanctuary, which I used to think that was a joke, but I actually have come to see that people do that. Yes, it actually does go on in some of these mega churches. They hand out earplugs to you as you walk into the sanctuary. Not my not my cup of tea, but you know, that's what goes on. On the positive side of the ledger, two-thirds of churched adults say they attend church because they enjoy doing it. The same is true for four and five practicing Christians. Still, it's worth noting that one in six churchgoers say they attend because they have to, and one in seven say they do it out of habit. I think you're never going to get rid of that contingent. I think you're always going to have some people who show up for the kids or to keep the wife happy or what have you. While most churchgoers attribute positive feelings to their participation in church, half of Christians agree that church as usual is declining in popularity, or at least churchgoers perceive that other people feel this way. About half of Christians and more than half of churched adults overall admit that people they know are tired of the usual type of church experience. So what does that mean? Does that mean the cool way of doing church is falling out of favor? Would that be an argument in favor of never having gone down the church growth road to begin with? I don't know. They don't get into that. Okay, number three, churchgoers largely experience and have come to expect positive emotions and outcomes by going to church. Overall, churched adults say they leave worship services feeling inspired, encouraged, forgiven, as though they have connected with God as though they have connected with God or experienced his presence. That's kind of a weird way to say it. And challenged to change something in their life every time. A plurality of churched adults also express always feeling like attending services was the most important experience they had all week and that they learned something new. Even so, 32% of churched adults say they feel disappointed by the experience at least half the time and another 40% leave feeling guilty. Okay, is that the worst thing in the world? (laughs) It depends why you're feeling guilty. Are you feeling guilty because you were fed a diet of false guilt? 
you know, you know, you just got beaten up by the pastor and it really wasn't over something specifically that you had sinned over, but it was just a generic you stink. I mean, I don't know if it was that or if it was a matter of the pastor preaching the word of God and you started feeling guilty over your actual sin for which you need to repent, in which case if it was B, then that's a good thing, isn't it? it it's good. If you feel guilty for your sin, that that's a good thing because then you know I need to turn to the Lord to forgive me. You know, we act sometimes as if guilt and shame is always a bad thing. Guilt and shame is not always a bad thing. Guilt and shame can be used in a, in a beautiful way by the Lord and, and is used in a beautiful way by the Lord in the repentant soul that you, you feel guilt over your sin. You feel shame over what you have done and you recognize your need for a savior. So that's not a bad thing. And I, I just don't know. Again, yeah, they, they tell you these things and then I'm always left going, but, but, but what about this? What about this? Fourth trend, church membership is still a common practice and is correlated with positive outcomes, but its importance is declining among younger churchgoers. It's not surprising. Of those who attend church at least every six months, a little over half report being an official member at their place of worship with just above one in three reporting they regularly attend but are not members. Practicing Christians expectedly show deeper commitment with seven in 10 noting they are members and one in four claiming regular attendance without membership. Surprisingly, no significant differences emerged in membership rates between denominations, whether mainline, non-mainline, Protestant or Roman Catholic. But a different story emerges when looking across the generations. Boomers, baby boomers, are more likely than both Generation X and millennials to be formal members of their congregations, with nearly seven in 10 churched baby boomers confirming membership. Younger generations of churchgoers were also more likely to mention not applicable. Weird. Which suggests that the category of membership isn't even part of their church's nomenclature. Is that a thing now? You have churches that don't have membership? I've never heard of that before. Kind of interesting. And finally, trend number five, the perception of the church's relevance to the community is under question, especially among non-Christians. They report that while sliding church attendance rates and commitment levels might speak to an individual's characteristics and priorities, Barna wanted to know how adults perceive the big C church's relevance, as well as the local church's influence on society. While practicing Christians firmly believe that Christian churches have a strong community impact, the rest of the U.S. population is not as quick to sing their praises. Only about a quarter agree that churches have a very positive impact to the same percentage who say it has no effect at all. You know what, though? See, I look at that and I say, you don't want to have a bad reputation in the community for sure. But at a time in our culture where there is a rising hostility against Christianity in general, I don't think we can make too much of the general population thinking we're awesome all the time because there is a fair number of people in this growing society that hate Christianity and hate Christians and you know, have all sorts of reasons for maybe disdaining the church down the street because it's anti-LGBT or it's this or that, you know, all the stuff that goes on. So how much should we make of it? I actually think that that's not necessarily a good thing to even worry about all of the time, as long as you are honoring the Lord with how you respond in your community and you're doing outreach and you are sharing the gospel with your neighbors and you are helping with all kinds of, you know, service activities or public service projects in the community. Churches always do that. Churches have always done that. You know, the most important thing is that we are salt and light. That's what I think. The most important thing is that we're salt and light. And that's what we have to continue 
to emphasize we are in a world that hates us because they hate Jesus Christ. And yet Jesus Christ died on the cross and rose again to save people who hate him. And it's our job to be his ambassadors and to share that good news with the dying world. We're going to have to leave it there. We thank you for being with us as always here on Janet Mefford today. Thanks again for tuning in and we'll see you next time. Thank you.